Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and get your Bibles out and turn to John chapter 8 as we continue through uh, this sermon series, Encountering Jesus in the Gospel of John. And actually, before we do anything else, I want to just take a moment to thank uh, so many of you who helped with the tea. Uh, Just love. Yeah, that's great. Let's clap. That's great. Just love the ways that that so many people serve and participate and share in that. Thankful that the gospel uh, was very clear and went forward. Uh, And just, man, love how many of you women just stepped out on a ledge and invited non-believing friends or coworkers or uh, whoever it is, and we want to keep praying for them. So thank you for that. Uh, it, It is gloomy outside, but loved ones, the light of Jesus is shining inside. In fact, that's what the very first words that Jesus says to us in this text is, I am the light of the world. Uh, So don't let the weather fool you in terms of what's actually going on here this morning. But as we're looking at John 8, I want you to think uh, about this here for a moment. Uh, When was the time in your life, I want you to think about the time in your life when you were in the most trouble. Think about that. When you were in the most trouble, and I thought about that, and I was like, that's my whole childhood. I spent my entire developmental years in trouble. Uh, But as you think about trouble, you might think of trouble as something that's peril or danger. You might think of trouble in something that has negative or costly consequences. Uh, You might think of trouble and think of something that comes with uh, great levels of anxiety or stress. But when were you in the most trouble... And then here's the follow-up question. How receptive were you to help in that time of trouble? How willing were you to listen to what God had to say? Because we come to a text this morning where Jesus is going to make very clear to the religious leaders that they are very much in trouble. There's great peril for their souls, but they are unwilling to receive any of his help. In fact, not only are they not willing or interested in Jesus' counsel, which leaves them in great peril, I would argue they're largely unaware of just how precarious their situation is. And I wonder for you and I if we could see the trouble that we too were in if, if left to ourselves, if incapable of seeing what Jesus is saying to us. In fact, here's what God's Word is going to reveal to us this morning. It's this idea right here, that Jesus is the I Am who frees us from our greatest danger, which is our sin, and draws us into his light of life. Let me say that again. Jesus is the I am who frees us from our greatest danger, our sin, and draws us into his light of life. This is where God's word is going to lead us this morning. But before we go any further, I think we would do all the stop to pray, to ask God to have his way over us. As always, we'll pray for another church uh, in the area, and then we'll start to walk through uh, this portion of text that God has for us. Why don't you pray with me, loved ones? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you uh, that you are going to open your word to us, that your spirit is going to come and speak to us. God, we trust and we pray that we would listen and we would respond. We pray that your spirit would have the freedom to do as you will in our lives, to encourage, to convict, to challenge, to exhort, whatever it is that you want to do, we pray that you would do it. And God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area, and I pray for Cedar Springs Church. God, for Grant Blankenship, and thank you for that brother, and thank you for that body of believers, and pray that you'd be moving and working in them as well, giving them all that they need, revealing to them the hope of glory that's found in you. In the same way that we long that you would do that for us, 
God, would you help us to see that you're the great I am? Would you help us to see the danger of our sin? Would you help us to see how you free us? God, would we be drawn into the light of life that's found in you and in you alone? We trust that by the power of your Spirit, you're going to accomplish that here this morning. And so we thank you and we love you. And we pray this in your name and all God's people said, Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is I Am. It's a pretty simple title, right? I Am. Uh, But Jesus is going to use that phrase a number of times. Uh, There's a great emphasis uh, on that title and that designation as we move through the text this morning, which is only going to serve to uh, very much deepen the conflict and the controversy uh, that exists between Jesus and the religious leaders that we've seen building to this point. Although in the next few chapters, it's going to reach a fever pitch because on a number of occasions, the religious leaders are actually going to attempt to stone Jesus. Uh, That's what we'll see actually towards the end of chapter 8. And then again in chapter 10, they're ready to kill him right then and there. And in addition to that, this account, uh, as Jesus speaks, very much has this legal or forensic sense to it. And so last week, what we saw is that Jesus is the true judge, and this week, Jesus is going to issue forth a judgment on the people. The court is in session, and the judge is going to make a ruling, and Judge Jesus has some things to say to his people. And so as we walk through this text, there's really two dynamics that we'll see on multiple occasions, three times this morning. Jesus is going to make a statement about himself. And then because of that statement, or tied to that statement, he's also going to issue forth a judgment or a verdict with respect to uh, the people. And so that's how we're going to walk through our time together in uh, God's Word. Now, I, I want to just point out, you notice that the title says, I am part one, uh, because really all of chapter eight is a singular discourse or dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders. And there was just no way we were going to get through all of that in a single Sunday. Um, if we were Puritans, we could pull that off because you got to preach for two hours, uh, but it doesn't work like that anymore. Uh, so this is really a single sermon that's going to unfold over two weeks. Uh, and so just make note of that. And there'll be a couple times, uh, particularly in the final section, we'll leave some stuff on the table uh, that we'll come back and get to next week. But uh, I am part one. Here we go. Three different statements that Jesus makes. Look at verse 12. Here's the first. God's Word says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Here's Jesus' statement. I just said it. I am the light of the world that gives the light of life. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus begins by saying, I am. Right? I am the light of life. This, this word I am or this phrase I am, in fact, Lynn read it here just a moment ago, has its roots in Exodus 3. And that's where Moses is being commissioned by God, and, and he says to God, hey, so when I show up to the people, keep in mind, Moses has been in the wilderness for 40 years. When I show up to the people, and they ask me to say, who sent me? Who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them that I am that I am. Tell them the I am sent you. I am is the title, it's the name, it's the designation that God has ascribed to himself. And so when Jesus uses uh, this, this designation, it carries a deep connection and a deep connotation to the person and the identity of God. In fact, we, we believe that there's seven I am statements in John's gospel, right? We looked at one of them a few weeks ago, I am the bread of life. Here he's going to tell us that he's the light of the world. Other statements include that I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. 
So we have these seven I am statements that Jesus gives us, but uh, we've already seen this, and in fact we'll see it in this text as well, that there's also these informal I am statements that show up in John's Gospel. Remember back in chapter 6 when Jesus was uh, on the water uh, in the stormy sea, and he says to his disciples, it is I, and it literally is I am. And I think there's a few of them even in this text that we're going to see around this notion of I am driving at this theme of I am. And yet here's what's so interesting. Look at this. I am the light of the world. Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And you know how many more times Jesus talks about light in this passage? Zero. It's like, wait, what? Uh, and, and there's no physical indicators. There's no markers. And we're like, what, 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 are you, what are you doing here? What, why would you say that and then not come back to it? How should we think about this? Well, I think the prologue, right? Remember the introduction to John's gospel is helpful for us in how we should think about light. Uh, in fact, John tells us this in John 1, 4, and 5. He says, in him... He's talking about the Word. Of course, we know the Word is Christ. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And I listen to verse 5. sounds an awful lot like the back half of verse 12. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So Jesus is connecting this idea of light and life and, and, and being free of the darkness. But in short, His proclamation is this, that for those that follow Him, they will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life, which seems like a pretty good deal. Uh, But the religious leaders don't really buy into that being a good deal. In fact, look at verse 13. So the Pharisee said to him, "Uh, Jesus, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What are they even saying here? What are they getting at? Here's the Pharisees' response. Uh, What you're saying doesn't really count because you're bearing witness about yourself and you need two witnesses and you don't have two witnesses. You only have one one witness. So so your witness is unverified. It's unproven. So we can't possibly believe what you're saying here. I mean, give me a break. Now, what they're probably referencing is if you go back to Deuteronomy 17 or Deuteronomy 19, that you had to have two witnesses uh, to verify something, but that was in a criminal matter uh, in a court of law, not uh, with respect to what Jesus is saying, although it might give us insight into how they think about Jesus. But really, this is an attempt for them to undermine him. This is an avoidance tactic to prevent them to consider what it is that he's actually saying. So Jesus is like, all right, you want to play? Let's play. Verse 14. Jesus says this, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. He's like, all right, you want witnesses? Here's the first witness. I'm a witness. And I know where I've come from. You don't even know where I've come from. Go back to chapter 7 and some of the debate on where does he come from. And he continues and he says this, you judge according to the flesh, verse 15. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. He's like, you you don't even have the the prerogative to judge. And we looked at that last week, right? Jesus' prerogative uh, to judge you and I. He's like, you don't have the prerogative, nor do you have the perspective, because you judge according to the flesh. And then I love this here, verse 17 and 18. He's like, you want to talk about law? Here's law. In, In your law... It's written that the testimony of two people is true. Okay, we need two witnesses. I've told you I'm one witness. Who does he say the other witness is? Look at this. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. You want a witness? Here's God himself. How's that for a witness? 
is beating them at their own game. Right? I'm here because the Father sent me. That's what he's saying. I noticed their response. They said to him, therefore, and can't you just hear the mockery and the scorn and how they say this? Where's your father? Oh, you said your father's here to witness. Where is he? Show me your father. Show me where he is. Uh, sh- show me your daddy, Jesus. And here's the verdict. Here's the judgment that Jesus issues. Look at verse 19 in response. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Here's the judgment. You're in the dark because you don't know my father and you don't know me. He's saying, listen, it's, it's the fact that you don't know my father or the fact that you don't know me proves that you don't know my father. That's why you're in the dark. That's why you're stumbling around, because you don't know me. You don't know the Father. And so you're in the dark, and you don't really know God, because you don't know who I am. That's what he's saying to them. Now, loved ones, listen, it's, it's one thing to know that you're in a dark room and you don't know where you're going. Right? Like you ever stayed at a friend's house, and you wake up in the middle of the night, and you don't really know or remember how the room is laid out. <laughs> and you're like, man, I don't remember where the light switch is. And you're kind of bumbling or stumbling your way through. Like, it's one thing to know that. Or, or, or think about if you've ever, and maybe this is true of some of you, um, particularly with, with kids, uh, when, when you just have bad eyesight from the time you were born. And you don't really know what, what clarity is until you finally get glasses. That was my brother's situation, my middle brother. Uh, he was probably six, seven, eight years old before he got glasses. And I can remember him saying, I just never knew that everything wasn't blurry. I just assumed that's how things always were, right? And then that moment where all of a sudden you have clarity or there's illumination or there's light, and this is what Jesus is doing here. He's flipping on the light. He's putting on glasses. He's making it really, really clear. You will walk in the darkness, If you don't follow me, you are in the darkness if you are not following me. But if you follow me, you're not in the darkness. You're going to have the light of life. And so really it begs the question, how do I know that I'm living in the light and not in the darkness? How do I know that I'm living in the light and not in the darkness? Well, the question really is pretty simple. Who am I following? Right? Who is it that I'm following? Right? To follow Jesus implies that I'm uh, in light and not in darkness. To, to, to follow anyone or anything else implies the opposite. So think of it like this. I'm in the dark if my response is to reject following Jesus. I'm in the dark if I'm unwilling to follow Jesus. It really is that simple and that clear. Right? The Pharisees have this, this bomb dropped by Jesus in verse 12, and what do they come up with? Well, it's not really a a, a verifiable witness. They come up with an excuse to ignore what Jesus is saying to them, which, which is why they're left in the dark. And I wonder if that's true of us. In fact, just ask yourself these questions, loved ones, whether or not this is true of you. First of all, this, do I have excuses or reasons to reject what Jesus is telling me in his word? Do I come up with or have or use excuses or reasons that I get to reject what God has laid out for me in His Word? Right? The Pharisees have this really lame excuse. You don't have witnesses. So we're going to reject what it is that you're saying here, Jesus. I mean, it's lame. It's not even in the right context. Are you someone who has a justification as to why God's Word doesn't apply to you? That's an obvious indicator you're in the dark, loved ones. Because you and I are never the exception to what God's Word is saying to us. 
Do I have excuses or reasons to reject what Jesus is telling me in his word? Secondly, do I push against the fact that I could be or have ever been in the dark? Right, this notion that you might be in sin, that you might be in the dark, that you might be blinded, that you can't possibly see everything. If you hear that and you're like, that's never true of me, that couldn't possibly be true of me, it's probably a pretty good indication that that's exactly what's going on. It is true of you. Right, because the gospel makes it obvious that this is what's true of us. Not just that you and I were in the dark, but that we were dead in our sin. I mean, that, that, that's like the ultimate dark. Does it shock you to consider that you could be wrong or blind to something in your life? See, because you and I should never think that we're immune to sin or to, some, or to stumbling. We're very capable of succumbing to this. I think even in my own line of work, one of the most sobering things uh, that I come across is to watch pastors who are disqualified from ministry. It's grievous, right? And in the last decade, there's been no shortage of that. In, in, in national headlines, national news, but it's not just national, uh, well-renowned people. It happens at the local level as well. And every time I see that, I think back to a comment uh, that an older guy uh, said to me at the very beginning, at the outset of my ministry. He said this, um, and, and while it was directed towards pastors, really it has bearing on all believers. Here's what he said. He said, the issue isn't whether or not you've been disqualified. The issue is whether or not you're naive enough to believe it wouldn't happen to you. Now, that's not all that he said, although that's certainly for us. Here's what he went on to say. He says, long before anyone is disqualified, long before anyone falls in sin, they make the tragic mistake in believing it won't happen to them, which is always the first step in it happening to them. And so if you're here this morning, you're thinking, it could never happen to me. (laughs) You're walking down the path. Right, You and I are not immune to sin and stumbling. I'm keenly aware of the fact that I could disqualify myself. I'm keenly aware of the fact that you can stumble and fall in sin. I know what's in me. Do you know what's in you? It's part of what Jesus is getting at here. Or how about this question? Is there any aspect or area of following Jesus that I'm unwilling to follow him in? Right, any area I won't go, some area that I just simply refuse to release. I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to hold on to this. Don't tell me to release this. Don't tell me to do this. Don't tell me not to do this. I'm in the dark if my response is to reject following Jesus. Here's the inverse of this. I'm in the light when my response is to follow Jesus. I mean, it really is just black and white, cut and dry. If I'm not going to follow Jesus, I'm in the dark. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm in the light. Now, now loved ones, what you have to understand is following is not a casual commitment. Right? Following is not something that, that we kind of pick and choose uh, as we go, right? It's, it's not like going to a lunch buffet and I pick and choose the aspects of the spiritual life that I like and just pass over the things that I don't like. So imagine having your tray and you got your plate and you're at the buffet and you're like, oh, I love grace. I'll take some of that and all oh, mercy and love. Yep, yep, love that. All the blessings of God. And you're like double fist in that thing. And as you roll along, what do you come to? You come to the peas of spirituality, right? There's suffering and hardship and trial, and you're like, oh, I don't want any of that. So you just pass right over it. That's not following. Right? Following isn't pick and choosing what we want. To follow biblically is to give ourselves entirely over to Jesus, irrespective of how we feel about it. When we follow, it means we live in the light of life. There are some who believe that as Jesus is making that statement, what he's saying 
is that he's making an allusion to the pillar of fire that led the people back in Exodus. Remember that right after they came out of Egypt? There was the cloud, right? The pillar of fire and the, and the cloud that the people would follow uh, as they moved through the wilderness. Now, I don't know if that's what Jesus is alluding to. Um, I, 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 I don't think those particular arguments are that convincing. But as I was reading about that and thinking about that, I did think the illustration is helpful in, in understanding what it, what it is that Jesus does for us in leading us by the, his light of life. In fact, make note of these three uh, aspects around how Jesus is leading us uh, in his light as we follow him. First of all, it's just that, that he leads and guides us. That Jesus leads and guides us in the same way that that light led the people through the wilderness. Jesus leads and guides you and I. And don't mistake the fact that Jesus led the people right into the wilderness, into the desert. His GPS wasn't broken and he didn't take a wrong turn. He doesn't need help with directions because he always knows right where he's going. And so if you find yourself saying, hey, I I believe that you're leading, but Jesus, I think you made a wrong turn. No, he has you right where he wants you. And he's leading you in that. Secondly, that pillar of fire uh, preserved and protected the people. You remember before the Red Sea split open and Pharaoh had a change of heart? And they're racing back to the Israelites and and, and they're going to come upon them and then what happens? (laughs) No, you're not. Right, because God stood in between them. He preserved and protected them. The light of life in Christ is preserving and protecting you and I. In fact, I would argue, loved ones, the vast majority of the time, you and I simply don't see this. And I'm not saying it's because we don't try. I think there's just a lot of this that you and I simply don't see. And the light of life is also present. It's present. It says in Exodus 13 that the pillar of fire did not depart from before the people. That God is present amongst us. But unlike the people in Exodus, not only is God just present amongst us, God actually dwells inside of us which is remarkable. Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world that gives the light of life. The judgment is this, you're in the dark because you don't know my Father or me. Here's the second statement that Jesus makes in verses 21 through 30. Let me just give it to you here at the outset. He says this, I am the Son of Man that spares you from death. I am the Son of Man that spares you from death. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now stop. Of those statements, I'm willing to bet there's one of them that you would fixate a little more on than others. Let me read it again. He says this, I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, I don't, maybe it's just me, but, but him going away and I can't come just doesn't seem to have the same gravitational force of, you're going to die in your sin. Wait, what? And then notice their response. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come? Which is highly slanderous, right? Because they're suggesting that Jesus is just going to kill himself. Um, and again, they're undermining him. But what should shock us is, wait, wait, wait. You don't want to hear anything about dying in your sin? And y'all aren't even a little bit excited that he's leaving? That's what you want. You want him to go away. I think you'd at least be a little bit excited about the fact that he's going away, and yet here you're just talking about him killing himself. Notice what Jesus says, verse 23. He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. Here it is. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man that spares you from death. Here's the verdict. Here's the judgment. You will die in your sins unless you believe in me. You will die in your sins unless you believe in me. That's what he's saying in verse 24. Literally, you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. Now, I think that I am he right there, you might want to circle that. That's one of those informal I am statements that Jesus is making. In fact, that phrase, I am he, is a phrase that shows up uh, in the back half of the book of Isaiah where God will say, I am the Lord and there's no other. I am God, there's none like me. And then there's times where God will make statements, I, I am he. And so here again, Jesus is making a connection to the fact that he is God. His implication is if you don't believe that I am he, if you don't believe that I'm God, you're going to die in your sins. It has a similar sense, a similar feel to what we see in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the what? Well, that was pathetic, church. Come on. I am the what? Way and, and who comes to the Father? No one comes to the Father except by me. It's the same sense that Jesus has here. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. There's an exclusivity to what Christ is putting forward, which this is the very nature of the gospel, right? That we place our trust in Jesus, that I believe in Jesus. What am I trusting? What am I believing? Well, I'm believing that Jesus is the one who spares me from the penalty of my sin, that Jesus bears the wrath that I deserve because of my sin and my rebellion and rejection against God, that I'm trusting Him to save us, that He's going to put His righteousness upon me, nothing in and of myself, but all of Christ, that I'm restored to God. And He, and He alone is the only one who's capable of doing that. That's what Jesus is saying here. And their response. So they said to him, who are you? Now, they could legitimately be saying, hey, we're confused. Who are you? Although we've seen none of that sense uh, from them up to this point. I think it's far more likely uh, that this is more along the lines of who are you? Who are you to suggest this? Who are you to say this? And we're going to put you in your place. I love Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. Jesus is like, who am I? Well, I've been telling you from the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of my ministry? The beginning of my life? Or the beginning of time? The answer is probably Yes. Uh, to all of those. But again, the, the prologue is really helpful for us. In fact, let me read the first couple verses of John's Gospel to us again. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so while Jesus might have the beginning of His ministry or the, the beginning of His life in mind, no doubt He also has the beginning of time in mind. That this is far broader than just the last couple of months or last couple of years. Jesus is saying, listen, all of history and all of creation and all of the Word has leaned into this moment when I would come. And if you want proof, you can go all the way back to the beginning. Go back to Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, and God is pronouncing a curse and a judgment upon uh, both Adam and Eve, and also, but He starts with the serpent. And he says to the serpent, there's going to be enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. And you're going to bruise his heel, but what's going to happen to the serpent? He's going to bruise your head. Loved ones, I can only be Christ. 
That can only be Christ. And so from the very beginning, God has been telling us that this is what he's going to do. That from the beginning of, of all of history and all of humanity, that I was going to be the one to bear the burden. Notice verse 27. They, they miss what Jesus is saying in verse 26 about the Father. Right? They didn't understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, because you might be saying, okay, but where's the Son of Man? Here it is. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing of my own authority, but just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He who has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This, this, this phrase of lifted up, right? The Son of Man and being lifted up. Now, lifted up both speaks to the glory and exaltation that will come to Christ. But, but in the Gospel of John, lifted up is a reference to the death of Jesus. We saw this back in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. We'll see it again in chapter 12 when Jesus is going to draw all people to himself. Right? This notion of being lifted up. And of course, to be lifted up. And his death is a reference to the condemnation for sin that Jesus is going to bear. Last week, Jesus is the judge who bears the condemnation of his own law. See, the issue here of what Jesus is telling to the religious leaders really is a matter of life and death. And for the religious leaders, they can't see it. They're blind to it. They don't realize the trouble and the peril that they're in. And so Jesus is telling them who he is, and, and, and they're going to come to realize that when he's lifted up, but he's also speaking of the nature of his relationship to the Father. Right? When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. He's like, when, when I've been lifted up, then you're going to know that I'm God. Then you're going to know that I'm, I, I'm the one that God has sent. It's going to be revealed at the cross. And while the leaders intend for the cross to be the final word against Jesus, God will instead use the cross to make it the final word about Jesus, once and for all revealing who He is and what it is that He's accomplished and done. Be the moment that removes all doubt. And yet understanding the great peril and danger that's at stake, let me just read to you again what Jesus says. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, am he, you will die in your sins. And so, loved ones, I have to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, the one in Daniel 7 who's given authority to rule over all kingdoms and all nations for all time? Do you believe that Jesus is that one? But in that same vein, the one that's given all authority to rule for all the time, does he have that same authority to rule in your lives? Because Jesus says, listen, you're going to die in your sin if you don't believe in me. Are we hearing and heeding this warning from Christ? This really is a life and death matter. I am the Son of Man that spares you from death because the judgment is you will die in your sins unless you believe in me. And here's the final one. The final statement. Verses 31 through 38. Here's the statements that Jesus will make. He says, I will set you free from your slavery to sin. I will set you free from your slavery to sin. And look at what it says, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, and believed him, uh, that might be actual belief unto salvation, although it's very possible that that's just, we're believing Jesus' argument. It's coherent uh, and it's strong, which makes some sense when you realize what Jesus says next. Here's what he says, if you abide in my word, 
You are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, I mean, just clueless. We're offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone, really. Because the moment you're saying that, you're under Roman occupation. And it wasn't that long ago before you were coming out of captivity. And I seem to remember a time in your history for centuries that you were slaves of the Egyptians. I don't know what you're talking about, but you know all too well what it is to be enslaved. So they go on and say, how is it that you say we, you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, we're going to come back next week and actually start uh, in this part of the dialogue. So we're going to leave some stuff on the table. Don't get frustrated uh, with me because we're going to start with some of the whole father-son adoption dynamic here next week. But look at what he says in verse 37. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Why, Jesus? Because my word finds no place in you. See, Jesus is declaring, I'll set you free from your slavery to sin. Here's the judgment. Here's the verdict. You're enslaved, and you're going to remain there unless you abide in me. Loved ones, the only way to freedom is through abiding in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. That the true mark of discipleship, that the true mark of belief is that we abide in the Word. And, of course, abiding in the Word means that we abide in the person of the Word, that we're abiding in Jesus. That's what he's saying. This is the very definition of discipleship. And the Word is not simply the message of Jesus. It's not simply the Bible. It's, it's the person and work of Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is the true disciple, the one who has true belief, the true follower, is the one who's going to rest and remain and abide in my message and my person and my work. Look again at verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So abiding to disciple, to truth, to freedom, there's the movement, right? That's the specific move that Jesus has for us. What starts with abiding ends in freedom. And in the Bible, when we see the word freedom, we need to make sure we understand uh, what it really means and what it doesn't mean. Because freedom is always a reference to spiritual freedom. Because what the Bible assumes for you and I is a bondage to sin. I mean, that's just inherent in sin, is that we're enslaved to it. That we're shackled by it. And so when freedom shows up, it's not freedom to license Right? God doesn't say you are free to do whatever you want or you're free to do whatever you feel like. You are freed from the bondage of sin and you're freed to Jesus. In fact, when we went through the book of Exodus a couple years ago, if you were with us, you hopefully still remember this, but our tagline as we went through the book of Exodus was that God draws us out of the bondage of sin and into relationship with Him. God didn't draw the Israelites out of Egypt to go do whatever they wanted in the wilderness. God drew them out of of the bondage of slavery and sin to the Egyptians into relationship with Him. That's what freedom always implies, is into relationship with Jesus. In fact, 2 Peter 2 gives us just a, a, a great depiction of the false promise and the false hope of any other type of freedom. So false teachers, Peter says this about false teachers. He says, they promise them, their followers, freedom. But they, the teachers themselves, are slaves of corruption. 
I mean, if you saw someone shackled promising you freedom, would you be like, oh, that person knows what it's like to be free? No way, right? You, you wouldn't even uh, think about that for a moment. Now listen to what Peter says next. He says this, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So, loved ones, you will be overcome by sin, you will be overcome by self, you will be overcome by the world, or you will be overcome by Jesus. And the fact that I am free means that I am no longer a slave to sin, but I am a slave to Jesus. You might say, well, I'm still a slave. Yeah, but it's radically different. See, because when the world promises freedom, they're just simply selling you a different type of slavery. You ever seen those time-lapse photos of meth addicts? Right, where the first picture is this young, healthy uh, individual, and then the next one, they're a little rougher, and then the third one starts to get kind of ragged. By the time you get to the fifth or the sixth one, it's like, oh my goodness, what happened to that person? And then what is so incredibly tragic is they put the timeline at the bottom, and it, 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 usually it's a matter of like 12 to 18 months. See, this is what sin does to us. There's no freedom in that. Those people aren't free. They're, they're in more bondage than, than they know. And there's a paradox that as we give ourselves over to slavery to Jesus, that's where you and I find freedom and liberation. And all of this, right, this freedom, all of this is tied to us abiding in Jesus. So, loved ones, what does it look like for you and I to abide? What does it look like for us to abide? Now, in one sense, it'd be real easy to flip over to John 15 uh, and finish with that. But we're going to preach John 15 in the spring, so I don't really want to preach that sermon yet. We'll preach that sermon when we get to it. Uh, But let me give us three words here as we close that I think are helpful for us when we consider what it is uh, for you and I to abide. First of all, uh, first word is this, is trust. What does it look like for us to abide? It's for us to trust, that we trust that Jesus is enough, that he's enough for salvation. That he's enough to rectify the wrath that we deserve from God in our sin. That he's enough to save us, but not only is he enough to save us, but he's enough to see me through this life, and he's enough to see me through this day and this upcoming week. week, That I trust that Jesus is enough. Secondly, really this is another word for abide, but it's that we remain. It's we remain, and and what I mean by that is we're content or that we're satisfied in Jesus. That Jesus is the point of my life and that he's enough to be the point of my life. That I'm satisfied with that, that I can be content in that. But I see the world for what it is. It's a good gift that God gives us to point us to Jesus, not to replace Jesus. And so I'm content in him. I'm satisfied with him, not with the world. So abiding, there's this sense of trust, there's this sense of remaining. Here's the third uh, and final one. It's that we pursue, that you and I would pursue Jesus relationally. That we would know Him. Now listen to me, listen to me, church. That we would know Him. Not about Him, but that we would know Him. Let me try to illustrate this to to help us capture the distinction here. Think about your favorite athlete, your favorite actor or actress, your favorite musician, right? Whoever it is, right? You think about, who's that person? Got him? So if I'm answering that question, I'm going to go athlete. i got two guys. One is Larry Fitzgerald, wide receiver for the Cardinals. 
And if he played with a real quarterback for more than four years in his career, he'd be the greatest wide receiver ever. Okay? That guy knows what it is to live in the desert in every sense of the word. Uh, other guy is a guy named Aeneas Williams, which if you're a real football fan and you've been around the league for a long time, you would know that name. Most of you wouldn't know him. Aeneas Williams was a cornerback who played with the Cardinals in the 90s when they were uh, absolutely abysmal. But uh, just for reference, Aeneas Williams is in the Hall of Fame because he was a phenomenal quarterback cornerback, not quarterback. Although the Cardinals teams in the 90s, you probably could have paid quarterback just as well. Anyway, I could tell you all kinds of things about their stats and where they went to college and where they grew up and uh, uh, other things that I had read. I don't know those guys. In the same way that you don't know your favorite actor or actress or athlete or musician or whoever it is. We don't know them. We know about them. And loved ones, I think this is far too often how you and I approach God. We act as if knowing about him is the end result, when in reality, it's knowing him. Oh, that we would know God the way that we know our close friends, the way that we know our kids or our parents or our spouse or the people that we're closest to. That's what it is to pursue him relationally. How do I do that? How do I get there? Well, here, first of all, you and I would commune with God. When you go to your daily quiet time, it's not to check something off a list. It's not to gather another fact. It's to spend time with the living God of the universe, which is remarkable that he would even be willing to spend time with you and I. And so as we pray and as we read, it's not just, did I learn something new? But how have I related with him? How was there intimacy and fellowship and communion with him? That I would grow with God. It's just laughable to think that we would ever have him figured out. In the same way that I think it's laughable to think I'd ever have my wife figured out. And don't laugh because y'all are the same way too. You, you're not going to exhaust your spouse. And praise God for that. But that we would grow with them in this deepening relationship and this deepening understanding with one another. But I think this is really the, the, the area that we fail so miserably in, in terms of our pursuit with God is that we don't enjoy God. I mean, if we're just honest, we're terrible at this. We don't enjoy Him. We don't delight in Him. We don't find deep satisfaction in Him. And as I'm saying, think about some of your closest relationships, some of your closest friendships. Now, you think about some of those people? I think about some of those people. Certainly my wife is, is number one. That's my best friend. I think a Kyle Maycumber. The guy back in Flagstaff who's, who might as well be my brother. I think of my brothers. I think of a cousin. I think of a number of you. Right? Close friends. And you know what happens when I get together with close friends? You know what I'm not thinking? Oh, I've got to get some more facts and some more information. I've got to learn something new about it. No, no. I just enjoy being in their presence. And I just enjoy that we get to be together. I mean, it's laughable for me to think about, oh, I can't wait to see my brother. And I'm going to learn one new fact about him. We don't do that with anybody except when it comes to God. We're so consumed with wanting to know more information or more factual knowledge, but not pursuing the person. We don't abide. So we're, we're not free in that sense. Oh, God, help us that we would abide and enjoy the person of God. And the Pharisees are here, and they're absolutely enslaved because they fail to abide. And so they don't know the truth, and so they are not free. 
And the issue is, Jesus says, is in verse 37, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you, which really means I find no place in you. That's the problem. They're incapable of enjoying Jesus. And yet I wonder for us if God's word finds a place in us. I wonder if God's word has authority over us. I wonder if we're abiding in God's word. And more importantly, abiding in the person of God's word. See, Jesus is the great I am who frees us from our greatest danger, which is our sin. And he draws us into his light of life. And here Jesus is declaring these truths, inviting us out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life, to abide in him and be free instead of enslaved to sin. And the Pharisees completely miss it. Can you see it? Or are you too missing it? Church, I hope that you run to the I am. I hope that you're running to the light that gives life. I hope that you're running to the Son of Man that spares from death. I hope that we are abiding in the one who frees us from slavery unto relationship. God, help us. God, help us. God, help us. That would be true of us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the great I am. God, we thank you that you're not only the light of life, that you're not only the Son of Man. God, as we get to the end of this chapter, you just tell us I am. Running us right back to Exodus 3 and reminding us that you are in fact God. But God, I thank you that you're a God who's near and close and present. God, you're a God who invites us into fellowship and communion with you. And God, I pray that we would run into that, not from that. That we would hear these declarative statements, that we would hear the subsequent verdicts and judgments. And God, they would not be true of us because what we would find is is ourselves covered by you and your righteousness not shackled and enslaved by our sin and our corruption. So we thank you, God. We thank you that you are the great I am, freeing us from our greatest danger, our greatest peril, our greatest trouble, our sin, and drawing us into the light of your life. I pray that we would follow. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. May God remind